again, welcome to Freedom. I'm so glad to see you here today. And uh, also, those of you joining us online, welcome to Freedom Online. Thanks, Tony, for leading us uh, today. And I love, I love having Tony as our worship leader for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because he does such a neat job of pulling from so many different parts, so many different time frames of great songs and worship, pulling from the hymns, pulling from the praise and worship era of the 80s and 90s, and pulling from contemporary music to uh, weave together what we share in worship. Thank you for the job you do every week in that. I, I know that um, I was just thinking as we were worshiping and singing these songs of our love for God and God's love for us, and and at the same time, my heart just aching knowing that uh, that there are a lot of us who struggle with that reality. You know, if we're just honest, the thought of just basking in God's love for you seems foreign because life's been hard. Things haven't gone well and things that you wished for or maybe prayed for didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to. And so then it just leaves all these lingering questions of, is there really a God? And if, if he's there, is he good? And why does he not care? And I just, my hope and prayer for us today is that even if that's your experience and even if you're at a place of, of wondering and, and uncertain and just not feeling the love of God, that today in some way that's personal for you, that the love of God would break through in your life and that you could just know in a sense that goes beyond the idea that God loves the whole wide world, that you could hear in some personal way the voice of God speaking in your life saying, but I love you. I care about you and what's going on in your life. Well, that's not what the message is about today, but that is my prayer for you today. So today we're uh, in part two of a four-part series that's entitled Twisted. And uh, in this series, we're looking at four different passages of Scripture that are uh, very commonly thrown around, um, used a lot in the church. And some of these, the one today especially, the world is very familiar with and uses but they are passages of Scripture that have very frequently been twisted and used in a way that fits our purposes, but that really doesn't line up with what was intended in the Scripture. We, we twist them to mean something other than what they were intended to mean. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, next week I'm going to be focusing in on a passage that uh, there's a pretty good chance that this verse is somewhere in your house. There's a good chance that it's on a magnet on your refrigerator or it's on a little plaque hanging on your wall or seated on a, you know, on a side table in your house somewhere. Somewhere in your house, this, if, if you're somebody who puts Bible verses up, this verse is probably somewhere in your house. Next week's verse, Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Wonderful verse. Many people would say, my favorite verse, one of the most beloved verses in the Bible. Don't worry, I'm not fixing to blow it up. I'm not fixing to destroy it for you. But we are going to discover that we frequently, in fact, most often misuse, misapply, misunderstand this verse. We're going to go and unpack that. And I think when we're done, you're going to come away loving it and appreciating it and applying it more than ever before. That's, that's next week. But today, we're going to press in on what I believe is the most often quoted verse of the Bible by people who do not go to church. People who do not believe the Bible love this verse. They do. I mean, how ironic is that? That people who don't believe the Bible have a favorite verse of the Bible. This is it. 
It is Matthew 7, 1. We could all say it together, but I'm going to say it from the King James Version because this is the version when people are misusing it. They love to quote it in King James because it gives it an extra edge. <laughs> Judge not lest ye be judged. Oh, yeah. People love swinging that like a bat. Judge not. Don't you judge me. I, I would contend that I believe that this verse sums up the most pervasive attitude in American culture today. Because the way that this verse is being applied, what we're saying is, you don't get to say anything about how I live my life. You don't get to judge it. You don't get to tell me that I'm wrong. I don't get to tell you that you're wrong. Everything is equally okay. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do what I want to, and you can't say anything about it. You judge not. Is that not essentially how it's being used? So you just mind your own business. I had somebody tell me that this week, ironically. I love how God lets me experience stuff leading up to the sermon that I'm going to preach. I, was, I wasn't trying to get in somebody's face, but I was trying to talk to them honestly about just where they were in life. And he told me real quick. Basically to mind my own business. There wasn't any of my business how he was living his life. Oh, well, thank you very much for being a sermon illustration for this week and uh, summing up pretty much how we want to live life in America. Don't, don't you judge me because you sin too, so you can't talk about anything in my life. doesn't matter what I'm doing. The, the final virtue, it has been said that the final virtue of a morally bankrupt culture is always tolerance. And ultimately, that's really kind of a pseudo-virtue. Now, I want you to think about that statement for a minute. I, I've said it before, but it's, it's worth remembering, especially in light of where we are in American culture today. That the last remaining virtue of a morally bankrupt culture is one of tolerance. When we're not willing to hold on to any of the hard virtues, the one we'll hold on to is tolerance. Just let everything be okay. And that actually marks us as good people because we're willing to tolerate everybody else and applaud what everybody else does. And that's how we're twisting this verse to, to back up that idea of this being, you know, some kind of virtue. Tolerate any behavior, any belief system, any lifestyle. And we're being good Christians by tolerating that. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Do you think? Now, it does stink to be judged, doesn't it? How many of you, this is audience participation time, how many of you would say, yes, I have been judged in my life and misjudged looking back? Yeah, everybody can raise their hand on that. We all have, well, except for me. You, you'll be relieved to know pastors never get judged. Yeah, right. Good luck with that. I would contend that, <clears throat> that what we're talking about today is the, possibly the number one reason that people leave church and don't come back. Because they feel like Christians are so judgmental. That Christians are hypocritical and, and are narrow-minded and want to talk down to them. And so they walk away saying, I feel judged. And Christians are not supposed to, to ever judge. And it, it certainly does sting to be judged. So what is Jesus saying in this verse? Is he telling us that we never can correct anything that's wrong? If that's the case, then doesn't that mean 
that no student's essay can ever be graded? Because who are you to judge whether it's an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F? I mean, I think it's a good essay. Who are you to judge? And no jury can ever return a guilty verdict. Who are they to judge? And no police officer can ever write a citation for speeding or driving in the wrong lane. Who is he to judge? Maybe you had a good reason for driving that speed, driving in that lane. I mean, at some level, we all realize there's some measure of judgment that's required to keep there from being chaos in society. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yet it becomes a complicated question. In fact, let's just kind of play around with this for a minute before we dive into the deep end. I want to do a little exercise with you. I'm going to give you three different situations, and I want you to tell me whether or not it's okay to judge in these different circumstances. We'll start with a light one. When somebody gets a bad haircut, is it wrong for you to judge it as a bad haircut? What if it's your child that's got a bad haircut? And what if he got a buzz cut and got a very vulgar, profane word shaved into the side of his head? Is it okay for you to judge that? Yep. <laughs> I got one clear answer. Let's give a different scenario. What if you have a coworker, casual friend, he's married, but you observe frequently that he is flirting big time with all kinds of women at work? And he's not just a little flirty. I mean, he is really putting it on thick. He's asking them out for drinks. He's making the women at work uncomfortable. Is it wrong for you to judge that? Is it wrong for you to speak into that situation? Let's change it just a little bit. Now, what if that coworker is a member of Freedom Church? And what if they belong to your small group? Is it wrong for you to judge that? Is it wrong for you to speak into that situation? One more scenario. We know we all live in a culture today that essentially says you can have sex with whoever you want to, as long as you're both consenting. You realize that that is the, that is the mindset of the culture. It's just hooking up. It's just sex. If both people say yes, it's okay. You've got a friend who has a girlfriend, and they're having sex. Is it wrong for you to say anything about that? Is it wrong for you to judge that? What if the girlfriend's 12 years old? Is it wrong for you to judge that? What if the 12-year-old is your daughter or granddaughter? Is it wrong for you to judge that? Okay, have we thoroughly established at this point that this is not a simple black and white issue, that it's always right to judge, it's always wrong to judge. Can we agree on two things, for starters? One, this is a bit of a complicated issue, and two, this is a really important issue. It's worth pressing in to find out a biblical answer as to is it right or wrong to judge and if it's okay to judge in certain circumstances when and how do we go about that it's worth pressing into that so let's do that let's begin and go ahead if you've got your bibles turn with me to matthew chapter 7 we're going to flip around just a little bit in the sermon on the mount but we'll be focused in on the beginning of matthew 7 where in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now, how many of you were here last Sunday? Let me see your hands. 
Most of you, several of you were out last week. So if you were here, you'll remember we talked about on the difficult passages of the Bible, particularly there, you want to use three different tools in understanding difficult passages, three different parts to understanding it. And the first is context. We never build a theology around a single verse or a single passage of Scripture that it's always got a broader context. And so, first of all, we want to understand what's said immediately before and immediately following. We want to understand who's talking, who's writing, who are they talking to. We want to understand it in context. This wasn't written in 2019. Get it in context. Secondly, uh, we want to understand this particular truth in light of everything else the Bible says on this particular subject, particularly when it's a tough issue. Okay, this is not the only verse of the Bible that talks about judgment, so what else does the Bible say about this subject? And then third and finally, we want to be sure to apply it. Some things we don't understand until we begin to apply it, and then it begins to make more sense. So we're going to bring those three things, particularly the first two parts of that, to bear on this passage today, and we're going to start with context. Jesus says this in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll ask the question, what immediately precedes and follows what Jesus has said? What's he talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I'm not going to begin to try and teach you all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to just point out some things to you. The Sermon on the Mount is comprised of the whole of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 5, Jesus says what many believe is the key verse to understanding the whole of what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this to a crowd of people who are just seekers, essentially, ordinary people. And he says to them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're in church, that's a familiar passage maybe. But I want to tell you, if you're a first century Jew listening to this new rabbi Jesus, that's a knock you over with a feather kind of statement. The most righteous, respected religious people in their culture were the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the, the giants of the faith. And Jesus said to the people, unless you have a righteousness that goes way beyond what these people have, you'll never get in. Oh, and then from that thought, he begins to just stack dynamite underneath their belief system. I mean, he is fixing to just push the plunger and blow it up in one sermon. And so now he begins to build a case for how following the example of their religious leaders of their day is never going to cut it. And that something altogether different is going to be required. The different thing that's going to be required is a righteousness that comes from God to us, not through our good works, but by faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so in stacking the dynamite underneath their system, he says now in chapter 6, this recurring line, it's, it's all about don't be like these hypocrites. Don't be like these hypocritical religious leaders that you have watched all of your lives. And so in Matthew 6, the opening verses, he talks about how you give. And in Matthew 6, 2, he says, don't give like these hypocrites who always want everybody else to know what they've given and they make a show out of their giving. Don't be like these hypocrites. And in Matthew 6, 
6, he's talking about how you pray. And he says, when you pray, please don't pray like these hypocrites. Because they love to pray loud prayers and long prayers and public prayers so that everybody else hears them and respects them. And in Matthew 6.15, he starts talking about how you fast. And he says, when you fast, please do not fast like these hypocrites. Because they love to make a show of it. So everybody knows, I'm fasting today. Please don't bring me brownies. Because I'm fasting. Because I love God so much. Jesus is saying, don't be like those hypocrites. And he uses the word again and again and again. And then he gets to Matthew 7. And he says what we've just read about not judging. And then immediately following that, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You what? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? To remove the speck from your brother's eye. Oh, my goodness. It seems that this whole thing about judgment is tied to this whole bigger theme of please do not be like these hypocritical religious leaders who love to make up rules and try and force them onto other people. Jesus goes on to say later, they tie up these heavy burdens and they put them on people and they don't do anything to lift the burden off and they don't even follow the law themselves. They violate it in their hearts all the time. Don't be like these hypocrites. Oh, by the way, if we continued in looking at context, you'd see that later in chapter 7, the very same sermon, he goes on to say, And by the way, watch out also for false prophets. Oh, you'll know them. You'll be able to recognize them by their fruits. He tells them that twice in the same sermon. You watch out. You will recognize these false teachers by their fruits. Whoa, wait a minute. The same Jesus who in verse 1 just said... Don't judge, lest you be judged, has just come back and in the same breath, in the same paragraph, said, you realize many times when you're trying to address something in another person's life, looking at something that's stuck in their eye, you realize you've got something bigger caught in your own eye. By the way, I know humor is different from culture to culture and certainly it changes over time, but I guarantee you a first century audience laughed when Jesus said, why do you try and pull the little splinter out of your brother's eye when you've got a board in your own eye? That They, they used exaggeration as their, their, a major part of their sense of humor. So the crowd's laughing as Jesus is saying that, but he, then he drives home the point and says, you've got to take this out of your own eye. You've got to deal with the issue in your life before you can try and address the same issue in your brother's life. But do you notice? He tells you not only address what's in your life, but address what's in your brother's life. Get Deal with this in your own life so that you can help your brother deal with the same issue in his own life. Use discernment in that. Use discernment. Use godly judgment. Whenever people are, are preaching or teaching... Pay attention. Don't just go, well, I'm not supposed to judge them, so I just assume that what he's saying is all good. We should applaud. We should say yes and amen. Jesus is saying, you better wake up and pay attention because some of them are false prophets. And if you'll watch their lives, you'll recognize by the fruit of their lives. You'll be able to judge rightly who's speaking the truth and who's a false prophet. 
Well, that requires judgment. That requires discernment. Judgment and discernment are required for you to help a brother deal with something that you've had to deal with in your own life. When you take it in a broader context, Jesus' words have completely different meaning, don't they? You have to be careful not to cherry pick one little part of what Jesus has said and twist it to mean something that it didn't. So taken in context, this suddenly begins to sound very, very different. He's still addressing the issue of hypocrisy. So the end result is that you can help your brother deal with problems. We can speak into each other's lives, but you if we follow what Jesus has said in verses 3, 4, and 5 of Matthew 7, we realize if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to be careful to make sure that I'm looking at my own life as carefully as I'm looking at everybody else's life. And I'm not going to be able to address an issue in John's life if I'm not willing to also be honest and look in the mirror at my own life in that area. So now let's apply in the second way, the second principle of understanding a difficult verse. We looked at it in context. Now let's pause to consider what else the Bible says about this subject of judgment. There are at least four very straightforward things that the Bible tells us about a Christian and the issue of judging others. So let's consider these four, four different passages. And the first one is this. Never judge superficially. Now the fact of the matter is we've all done it. I've done it. Everybody here has judged other people based on the superficial, based on appearance. But Jesus says, this is the thing you have to guard against. It's so tempting to draw quick conclusions from what we see in a moment of time or what we hear about somebody. Jesus says in John seven twenty four, don't judge by appearances, judge by what is right. Whoa! Not only... Has Jesus already expanded, expounded on the idea of what it means to not judge, but to be careful to judge ourselves before we apply it to others? Now in, in John 7, Jesus is saying explicitly, you are to judge, but you're to judge rightly. You're, another translation says, you are to judge in a righteous way. So there's a righteous form of judgment. There absolutely is. But Jesus says, in order to guard against a wrong form of judgment, first of all, make sure you don't judge just based on appearances. Oh, it's easy to judge based on appearances, isn't it? It's easy to just, just based on nothing but appearance. To go, Who does she think she is wearing that to church today? Hmm. She thinks she's some kind of floozy or something. We'll just judge based on what somebody's wearing. We'll judge based on what time somebody walks into church. Hmm. Glad you can make it at least by the time the preacher got started. We love to just judge with no knowledge of what was going on in the last couple of hours. What somebody may have stopped to do on the way to church. It's just more comfortable and more fun to just judge you. A lot of times judgment's more fun than the truth. We just make up our own version of it. Jesus says don't judge Based on mere appearances, some of us have the spiritual gift of judging by appearances, don't we? We love to exercise that. <clears throat> it really is scary how much we, we've made an art form out of judging by appearances, even in church. I'll never forget one of the first churches that I ever served. I won't name it, but uh, it was 
a good church with good people. But I experienced firsthand so much of this thing about judgment. And when I came on staff in this church as a student pastor, I'll never forget that uh, the very first few months that I was there, the pastor led all the ministerial staff on a pastoral retreat for a day. And during that retreat, one of the issues that came up that the pastor initiated was that there was this sense of disconnect between what happened on Sunday morning in a traditional church and just the ordinary people that you meet all through the week. And we were trying to address the issue of how do we make church a more inviting experience for people just in the world. And we, we talked about a number of different ways to try and make that a more inviting environment. But one of the things that came up again and again was there just seems to be an awkward disconnect between the average person who hasn't grown up in church and this experience where you walk in and everybody is in a nice dress or a suit and tie. And so the pastor just laid it out there that day. Going forward from now on, I want all of us as pastoral staff to just drop the whole suit and tie thing. It is just time for us to just dress comfortably and casually, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to just try and and create an environment that says just come as you are. You don't have to put on a tux or a suit and tie or a dress to come close to God. God's not judging by your outward appearance. He's judging by your heart. So from this point forward, starting this Sunday, I want everybody on staff, I just want you to dress casually. And we want to just, in a variety of different ways, to create a more comfortable feeling. I will never forget the Sunday that followed. And what's funny is there's never been a conversation about what happened ever since then. Five pastors on that retreat, five in agreement going, this is a great idea, yes and amen. Sunday morning, I walked in in khakis and a button-down, freshly ironed, but just khakis and a button-down, and I bump into the associate pastor, and he's in a suit and tie. And I was like, I guess he forgot. And then I bump into the minister of music, and he's in a suit and tie, and I'm like, Oh, and then I see my senior pastor, and he's in a suit and tie. And I see the children's pastor, and he's dressed like me. And we're like, I think we missed a memo somewhere between staff retreat and today. I don't know what happened. I guess they went home and thought better of it. But there was never a Sunday after that that they dressed in anything other than a suit and tie. But the children's pastor and I both felt like this was a good idea from our pastor, and it's okay. It'll project kind of a, an image of come as you. If you want to dress up, that's fine. If you want to dress casually, that's fine. And so from that point forward, the children's pastor and I dressed casually for church, always, you know, pressed and, you know, khakis and a button-down kind of thing. You would not believe the amount of flack that followed as a result of that. Different leaders and long-standing respected members of the church who felt the need to dress us down. I mean, like one of the moments that really stood out was <clears throat> on a Monday when we had gone out as a staff to lunch. And we came back and I walked in my office and there is a stack of old, like early 1970s blazers and big ties that have gone out of style sitting on my desk with a long letter from a lady of the church who blasted me for the terrible example that I was setting for the lives of our young people. And lest I ever use the excuse that I couldn't afford to buy appropriate clothes to wear to church, that she took all of her deceased husband's dress clothes and brought them and put them on my desk so I could start setting appropriate examples for our teenagers. I got called before a committee for 
not dressing appropriately. I made the mistake of preaching in suit pants, a dress shirt, and a tie, and had my coat off. Unspeakable. I mean, one lady stood up in the balcony just so angry. I was defying the church. said, somebody needs to give a rebuttal to this man. It's like, wow, I didn't realize that happened in the Baptist church. <laughs> made the mistake one year. First year that I had taken a group outside the country on a mission trip. You've got to watch these things, Butch. They will mess you up. You go on these mission trips. I came back from the mission trip. I don't know. You do wild things on a mission trip. And for the first time in my life, I had to let a little facial hair grow. I came back with a little Fu Manchu going on like what I have now. And I, I remember Sunday morning before the service, I came walking in. And the, the elderly ladies had always sat right here on the right side. They saw me and I mean... Come here, come, come, come here, honey. Now you know we love you. That is what you get told right before you're about to be blessed, <laughs> honey. You know we love you, but this has got to go. That cannot stay. Church, church of all places, we love to judge based on appearances. Now those are all silly examples. Although I confess, some of them hurt. In the moment, as a young minister, you love these people. You want to serve them. And, and you just feel like at, at every turn, you're just being judged over little things. You're being rebutted. <laughs> Everybody's been judged. But we're also tempted to judge others. Look at them. Look at that house they live in. The car they drive. They've got so much money. It's obvious they spend it all on themselves. Just so greedy, so greedy. When you have no idea how many other people they help or what they give. But we love to judge based on appearances. You know, sister so-and-so, she is such a snob. I don't want anything to do with her. I saw her the other day on the street. She didn't even speak to me. Didn't even speak. Now, unbeknownst to you, she's dealing with a mother who has advanced Alzheimer's, a teenager that's out of control, and she's battling depression. But God forbid that she should overlook speaking to us on the street one day because of her own troubles. It's just so much easier to judge. Jesus said, do not judge just based on appearances. Judge by what's right. You know what that requires? It requires you to get to know the person before you exercise any discernment or judgment. It requires you to actually get close up and know something about them and to choose again and again to not have tender feelings, to not throw walls up or throw stones just based on a chance encounter or just something that we've heard or something that we've observed from a distance. So first of all, in judging, be careful not to judge superficially. And before I leave this, let me say one more thing. It is tempting to do the wrong thing here at the level of churches. Churches judging churches. I just hate those big churches. They're so impersonal. They're all about the money. Everybody knows this to all a big production. There's no Jesus in that. It's just a big show. Says who? Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge what is or is not right about another church? I want to tell you as plainly as I can. We are going to be a church that is for every church that is for Jesus and for people. 
I don't care how big or how small. And if we've been guilty of judging and speaking negatively of other churches, let's repent today. Because we are going to be a church that looks for ways to build bridges and to, to build unity among the body of Christ. Who cares if they're bigger than us? Praise God if they've reached more people than we've reached. Jesus isn't going to measure us against each other. There are wonderful small churches out there. There are wonderful big churches out there. Don't judge by appearances. Don't judge other pastors by appearances. Don't judge them by what they drive. Who cares what they drive? If they're for Jesus and they're for people, let's be for them. Are we good with that? I thought it might be quiet at some points today. Never judge superficially. Number two, never judge hypocritically. Clearly, this is much of the heart of what Jesus is communicating in the Sermon on the Mount. Never point out in others what we're not willing to address in our own lives. Now, I want to read a passage from Romans, and we are in Romans in our our, uh, daily Bible reading as a church family. If, If you're reading through Romans with us, you may have observed when you... Start reading in the first chapter of Romans. Once you get to the middle of the chapter, it is almost shocking when you live in a world that today is so politically correct in all things to read Paul's words. I mean, did anybody feel just a little bit of a wow factor when you read Romans 1 again? Paul does not sound like he's trying to be politically correct at all. What he begins to describe is the downward spiral of of what sin how it evolves in our lives when we're not connected to God and his power and grace to transform us. And so he just begins to spell out in pretty good detail what this looks like. And part of what he describes is that when, when we're not tied into the grace and power of God to change us, that sin is going to manifest itself in all kinds of forms and that there's going to be a progression to this. And part of what he spells out is that sexual misconduct becomes one of the most common things that happens in, in lives many times when we're cut off from the grace of God. And, and he points out how there's a progression even in that and how when we substitute other things in place of a right relationship with our creator that we will we'll give in to drives that we never even really had before and how we'll pervert even sexuality. And he says we'll begin to do things that don't come naturally. And he begins to describe homosexual relationships and how that becomes a progression in this whole thing. And he says there comes a point in time when God will just give a person over to a depraved mind so that they'll do things that they never would have dreamed of doing before. And then he begins to just spell out one thing after another after another of what people will do with this progression of sin. And when you get to the final paragraph of Romans 1, as he's describing these things, he says they're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And he goes on to say, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but don't miss this, but they even applaud others who practice them. You get what he's saying? In this downward spiral of sin, he says not only do you progress into things you would have never dreamed of doing, but he says the cherry on top of this Sunday of disgust is you get to the place that not only do you practice these things, but you applaud others who do. 
Does this sound a little bit familiar in our culture today? Oh, they have stepped out and announced this about themselves. How much courage that took. Let's applaud them. Let's give them an award for, for courage in announcing how they're living. Do you realize he's describing our culture today? Now, at this point, it's very tempting to think by the end of Romans 1, Woo, Romans is going to be a tough book. Paul is just going to beat everybody to death over the sin in their lives. It's going to be a very judgmental book is how it may feel. But in the very next sentence, I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans 2, 1. So do you think that you can judge those other people? What other people? The people he's just been describing. Do you think now you get to judge them? You are wrong. Because you too are guilty of sin. You judge them, but you do the same things they do. So when you judge them, you are really condemning yourself. And he goes on to say in verse 4, God has been kind to you. He's been very patient, waiting for you to change. But you think nothing of his kindness. Maybe you don't understand that God is kind to you so that you will decide to change your lives. It's kind of breathtaking how quickly he turned on a dime there, isn't it? I mean, it feels like he's just, man, he's going to hammer those people, those wicked sinners. And he says, hold on just a minute. I'm just explaining to you the effect of sin in our lives. I'm telling you where we'll naturally go on our own. But don't think for a minute this gives you an opportunity to jump up on your soapbox and start pointing a finger at all those sinners. Because he said you better be pointing a finger back at yourself the whole time. Because whatever you want to judge in others, you realize you're just as guilty of sin in your own life. And I love how he, he pulls this off, what he said in Romans 1. Buried. Right in the middle, just sandwiched, right in between homosexuality and, and murder and God-hating is greed and gossip and anger and disobedience to parents. You see, the bottom line is you can't possibly read this list without having to go, oops, he's talking about me. He's talking about things like pride and talking about other people. He's talking about the stuff in my life. And he says, understand, you want to go, yeah, those nasty perverts out there. God's going to judge them. Murderers and homosexuals. God's again them. And he said, don't you understand? God's again every kind of sin. And just because you look at your life and you go, well, I mean, I don't see a lot of God's judgment in my life. So he must not be too upset about my little sins. I mean, everybody gossips. Everybody's got a little pride. Everybody disobeyed their parents. He says, don't you understand the fact that maybe you're not living under judgment right now? It's not because God doesn't take your sin seriously. It's God being kind and merciful and saying, oh, I just long for you to come to a place of realizing your need for grace and for Jesus. I don't want to bring judgment down on you. I want you to repent the same way I want everybody else who's in sin to repent. I love you all equally as much. And I'm not more turned off by one person's sin than another. So don't you put them in categories. And don't you hypocritically say, well, those perverts better clean up their act. We have a different message. And it's not a message of judgment for those people. It's a message of how we all universally need the grace and forgiveness of God. 
And that's a message that doesn't water down the truth. Sin is still sin. We've got to call it sin. We don't get to just say, well, I was born this way or my parents did something to me. No, sin is still sin. And we all need the grace of God. But our nature is to accuse and excuse. We want to accuse and point our fingers at other people's sins and make excuses for ours. Well, what about you? What about that time that you, oh, no, wait a minute, don't judge me. I mean, that, that was one time. That's not really who I am. You see, my past doesn't define me. That was in the past. Well, isn't everything in the past? I mean, what I said five seconds ago is in the past. Everything's in the past. We want to just explain it. Yeah, but that was my past. That's not who I am today. That doesn't define me. I know. We want to excuse ourselves and, and give ourselves grace and judge other people that won't cut it. The tough reality is this. Not always, but oftentimes, our harshest and most consistent judgment is actually directed at other people who struggle with some issue that at its core is something that we struggle with. Yeah, they're not going to get a lot of amens. Because we don't like that. That many times, the things that we want to most harshly come down against, if we really are honest, often, that judgment is tied to The fact that somewhere deep down inside, we struggle with something very related to that. I mean, we could easily give examples of that. I mean, how many of the, truly, I'm not picking on anybody when I say this. I'm just saying it illustrates the point. How many different high-profile pastors and evangelists were known for just railing against homosexuals or railing against adulterers and fornicators and just bashing that every time they stood up to preach and then, you know, they wind up being exposed that they were in a gay relationship or that they were, you know, having an affair the entire time, that they were hammering that every day. I heard a pastor recently share something that I just thought, wow, what a perfect example of this. He said that a member of his church came to him one day, a man just livid because he had stumbled upon his roommate looking at porn in their apartment on his computer. And he was just so mad about this. And he's just, you know, blah, blah, blah to his pastor. I can't believe this. I am not going to tolerate this kind of filth in my house. Blah, blah, blah. And, and trust me, I'm not defending anybody using pornography, but the guy was just so angry about it. And he said the great irony is the very next day, the guy who came in so angry was exposed for currently being in a years-long affair with a married woman. So angry at his roommate for looking at porn. I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to have this filth in my house. But not willing for a moment to try and address an inappropriate relationship that he'd been in for years. There's a reason why we do this kind of thing. We get to a place, we don't know how to address our own brokenness. And so as a coping mechanism... We tend to want to rail against other people who struggle with a similar thing. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, be careful because some of the things you want to, want to bash so hard, oftentimes it's something that at some level you're dealing with yourself. So don't judge hypocritically. Always be willing to look in the mirror and make sure we're addressing anything that we see in other people's lives. The third guideline. And this is an important one here. This is a big one. Never hold non-Christians to 
to Christian standards. Let me say that again. Never hold non-Christians to Christian standards. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 Remember now, he's writing to a specific church that he knows firsthand very well, and he addresses a very specific issue. It's kind of amazing that this gets actually included in the Scriptures for us. The situation that he's addressing is a a man who's well-known in the church who is having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother, his father's wife. He's enjoying a relationship with her as if he was the husband. And everybody in the church knows about it, and instead of addressing it appropriately, it's just become sort of the running joke of the church that this guy's in this inappropriate relationship. And Paul addresses that candidly, and, and he essentially says, you know, this is beyond the normal steps of, of discipline. And, and, the, and we're going to we'll take the time to go into why Paul said what he did, but it, the long and short of it is he had them take the most severe step of church discipline in dealing with this man who was a brother in the faith. And he ultimately says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul can be saved. Let him experience a place of living outside the covering of God and God's family so that hopefully, having to land hard, he'll repent and come back to God. By the way, there's a great lesson for some of us in the room that needed to hear that. That there is a time and place that you remove the covering of protection that you've been providing for someone you love and you let them land hard and you let them experience judgment so that they'll hopefully repent and turn back to God. Another message for another day. Having said all of that, he concludes that thought by saying in verse, verses 12 and 13, it's not my business to judge those who are not a part of the group of believers, in other translations, who are not a part of the church. He says it's not my business to judge those outside the church. God will judge them, but you, you within the church, must judge those who are a part of your group. So the bottom line, two things. We are to use appropriate judgment in the church, and we are not to apply those same standards to people outside the church. Why on earth would we expect people who don't have a relationship with Jesus to act like they did? How silly is that? And why would we attempt to reform their behavior to try and make them act like Christians when they're not? Because if anything, it'll mislead them to thinking that they're right with God when they're not. So we don't judge people outside the church as though they belong to the church. And I want to make some things really clear for us today. Everybody out in the world who may be far from God, who may be neck deep in any kind of sinful struggle, is welcome in Freedom Church. And I want to say this clearly to everybody in the room, everybody watching and listening online. Wherever you are in your life, whatever you're struggling with, you are so welcome at Freedom Church. You do not have to believe or behave in order to belong. Say that again. You can belong before you believe and before you behave. And I know some of us, the wheels are turning like, wait a minute, is that okay? Is that okay? The reason that we say that is because that is how Jesus did ministry. Jesus didn't wait for people to clean up their act before he'd enter into a relationship with them. In fact, it got him in a lot of hot water with the hypocrites, with the religious leaders. They said, this man is a friend of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. What is wrong with him? 
And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. That's who I've come for. That's who I want in my life. And so everybody is welcome in Freedom Church. You may struggle with anger that's out of control. You're welcome here. You may be in bondage to addiction and you don't know what to do. You are welcome here. You may be so tangled up in relationships and sexual acting out and you may be covered in shame because of it. You are welcome here. You may be completely unsure of what to believe or if you believe or if there even is a God. You are welcome here because you don't have to believe before you can belong. But I also need to say this. Everything that I just said applies to everyone who is looking for help. Who is looking for connection and meaning and get to a better, getting to a better place. You are welcome. But if, on the other hand, you are deep into something that we were describing or something like that, and you have no desire to change, and you've come with an agenda, and you don't want to defend a lifestyle or defend something that the Bible calls sin, it's not going to go so well for you. You're not going to feel comfortable here. Because we will not shrink back from calling sin, sin. The things that we just read in Romans 1 are not okay. They're not okay for me. They're not okay for anybody. And we're not here to stroke each other and just say, well, I've got my stuff and you've got your stuff, so let's just leave each other alone and not judge each other. Nope. What we are here to say is, I'm not here to fix you, and I'm not here to judge you or beat you up, but I am here to do one simple thing, to introduce you to the Jesus who is changing me. I can't fix you just like you can't fix me. But I know the one who can. And our goal is to embrace people and introduce them to our best friend Jesus who has the power to change what we can't change. And, you know, Jesus and the apostles referred to the offense of the gospel. Do you know why the gospel is offensive? Because the good news isn't good news until you know the bad news that we are broken by sin. To be told that you're a sinner is offensive. To be told that the thing that you enjoy so much and that you run back to so much is wrong. And even though the world has told you it's okay, you're, it's just who you are, nobody should judge you. It doesn't matter how many times the world says that. When the scripture says that it's wrong, we just agree with the scripture and say it's wrong. But the good news is it can be forgiven and we can be changed so that we don't live in bondage to that anymore. And Paul's message and Jesus' message is not a politically correct message. And we are going to deliver a message of grace and truth. Absolutely. We love you and accept you. And we're going to hold on to each other and seek God and seek to be transformed by his power, forgiven and changed. And we're not going to judge each other along the way, but we are going to be honest with each other and we're going to help each other. We're not going to make excuses for one another. So we are not going to judge the world. We're going to welcome the world. But within the family of faith, we're going to operate by a different set of rules. You understand, every time the church gathers on Sunday morning, there's two groups of people in the room. The family of faith and part of the world. 
no ugliness in saying that. You, you get that. You have to understand this. Every time we assemble, there are seekers and those who are already in the family of faith. Within the family, we operate by a different set of rules. It's house rules. And we live by those. When I was raising my girls, we had house rules. They only applied to our family. There were certain music we didn't listen to. There were certain movies we didn't go to. There were certain TV channels we didn't watch. We were not an MTV family. Call me a legalist. We were not. We, 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 just, we didn't do certain things with our girls. I never tried to apply those house rules to anybody else's kids. I didn't apply them to the church's youth group. Never tried to apply them to the neighbor's kids. Why? Because they were our house rules. They only applied to the family. And I didn't get bowed up at what anybody else did with their family. I just had to answer for the rules for my family. Our family has a different set of house rules. This church family does. And you know what defines the house rules here? The scriptures. Now there are different church families that they have their own house rules. And they go outside of the scriptures. And in some of those places they got all their list. They're again all kinds of things. They're against playing cards, and they're against dancing, and they're against rock and roll music, and on and on and on. And they have all these lists of things that aren't named in the scriptures. We don't have a set of rules for those things. The book is the defining word for us. If this book calls it sin, we'll call it sin, and we'll do our best to run from it and get free from it. We'll operate by a different set of house rules. We're not going to bash each other with that, but we're going to say together what this book says is right, we're going to call right. And what it calls wrong, we're going to call wrong, and we're going to do our best to run from it and run to what's right and run to Jesus. And we're not going to show favoritism in that. We're not going to say, well, you know, I mean, we all gossip and we all struggle with this or that. But then there are the really bad ones that we're going to confront. No, we're just going to say we don't want to make room for the flesh. We all struggle. We're going to do our best to be honest with ourselves and with God and each other about those struggles and get free from what has held us in bondage. And then fourth and finally, tied to that, when we realize within the family of faith that somebody has really gotten to a bad place, always seek to help restore Christians who stumble, to restore them, not to beat them up. Why is this so important? You want to know why? Because the person who stumbled at some point is going to be us. Everybody under the sound of my voice, starting with me, we're all going to stumble. We're all going to be in need of somebody else's help to get to a better place because we got off track. And we need to extend the grace that we're going to want when it's our turn. Within the family, within the church, we've got to abandon this mindset of shooting our wounded it's a bad practice and decide instead to minister to and be tender with our wounded help them get back up paul said in galatians 6 1 and 2 dear brothers and sisters if another believer is overcome by some sin you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of christ We're so tempted when we're the one in a bad place to want to go, well, who are you to say that I've sinned? Who are you to speak to my issue? Well, the scripture defines 
whether our issue needs to be spoken to. And you don't have to live perfectly in order to speak lovingly into another person's life when they've fallen down. So if you see somebody within the family of faith stumble, uh, we don't just mean a slip up one time, but again and again they're, they're returning to something that's unhealthy. What do you do? Do you say, get out of this church until you clean up your act. We're handing you over to the devil, to the fires of hell where the worm never, never is satisfied and the flames never quench. No, that's not what we do. Family member has a problem with anger, with lust, with whatever it is. We don't kick them out. We don't banish them to the lake of fire. We gently restore them. We give them the same kind of grace that we've been shown. And we listen and heed Paul's warning. Because we're, we're in a precarious place when we step in to try and help somebody. He says, you're, you're apt to be tempted then. Tempted either by what they're doing to join in or tempted with pride and, and a spirit of, of judgment and hypocrisy. And he says, so really guard yourself when you're seeking to restore somebody else. But restoration is the goal. One of the biggest challenges that I ever faced as a young minister was a man who was much older than me, had been in ministry for way, way longer than I had, and had been a real mentor in my life. I mean, that was the big thing. God had used him so much, so profoundly to affect me. And because I had an opportunity to get to know him well and work with him, I became aware of an inappropriate relationship that had happened the year before. I had seen it from a distance, but wasn't sure what had gone down. And I found out over the course of the next year that there had been an inappropriate relationship and I didn't really know what to do and was just kind of relieved that apparently that that was over and this person was gone. But then unfortunately, that summer, I witnessed some things happening that had giant red flags that it looked like a repeat with another person of what I had witnessed from a distance the year before. And as I prayed about it, wrestled with it, I knew I had to go and talk to him. And when I did... I did not go in puffed up and wanting to cut him down to size. I was so intimidated. I was so afraid because he was so much older than me and wiser than me, and I respected him, and, and I was just scared to death. And I went in and tried to very gently and respectfully address my concern, and he blew up. He became so angry, which was, I mean, now with some experience and age, I, I realized which was a real good signal as to what was really going on because he was so livid. I wasn't threatening to expose him or anything. I just wanted to talk to him about it and talk to him about what needed to change. For the next 48 hours, he pulled me into meeting after meeting after meeting, one-on-one -on -one with him, and just could not let it go. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you another six hours about this. I said what I needed to say, and he just could not let it go. It was the most miserable weekend of my life up to that point. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know if I'm going to lose a job over this or what. And then Monday morning rolls around, and he's suddenly gone. And the senior layman from within that ministry calls me up and says, What did you do this weekend? And I'm thinking, I don't know, and I don't want to talk about it. I said, I was just honest. I just addressed a concern and tried to speak truth into a situation. And it was a weird conversation because I could tell the this senior leader that had called me is like, he's on cloud nine. He's juiced about something. And I'm, I'm like lost as to what's going on. And he said, I don't know what you said, but it must have been great because so-and-so, 
the leaders, the leadership have all known about this problem, but nobody knew what to say or do. And so nobody was really doing anything. But now he's resigned and he's gone and checked him, himself in a place to get the help that he's needed. And we've been wanting for so long for that to happen. And we found out somehow something happened with you. And now suddenly he's gone. So we want to know what you did. I'm like, well, I didn't do anything. It was an awful weekend. We just... We just talked about what was going on, and there was a need for change. And, and he was so pumped about this. And I'm thinking, I don't ever want to do this again as long as I live. And unfortunately, I found out you don't get to avoid that and actually follow Christ. Now, there wasn't a quick conclusion to this. It took an extended period of getting help and being restored to his family. And eventually, years later, being restored to a pastorate. I hated the experience, but I love seeing good fruit come from that. I don't know where he is now, but I know years later he called me up and invited me to come and preach in his church. Not on a Sunday when he was out, but just a Sunday to have me there. And I, he, he was always a person of few words. He never came back and said, hey, thanks for confronting me that weekend. But I always knew in my heart that was his way of saying, thanks. I, I want to have you in, to preach in my church because... I appreciate what you did for me then. And uh, I don't say that to brag on anything because if, if anything, I stumbled and fumbled through that. But I hold on to that. I hold on to that, that memory and that outcome each time I have to speak into situations that I don't want to speak into. I hate this part of what we do, but I love the stories of redemption that come out of that. I want to tell you that's not a pastor's role. That's everybody's role within the family of faith, that we have to speak truth in each other's lives gently and lovingly. And you just need to know on the front end, it's not pretty a lot of times while it's going on. We're so defensive. We're so touchy about our issues. But don't feel like that means that God isn't in it just because it was awkward when you did it. Sometimes you won't see the fruit of your obedience until years down the line. But we've still got to be faithful to speak truth when we see something broken going on. In the family of God, our goal is to, to speak truth and to extend grace. John 1.14 sums up for us a picture of what the goal is. It says that Jesus, the word of God, when he came and took on flesh, that he came to the earth full of grace and truth. That's the balance we always have to hold. Grace and truth. Churches will usually err on one side or the other. There are a lot of truth churches out there. They will give you the truth. Bless God, they're going to nail you with the word of God. They're going to hammer you for what you're doing and tell you you better turn or burn. And people from the world typically walk away from that feeling bruised and offended and judged and say, I don't need that. I already feel bad enough about my life. That's the truth church. And then there are grace churches that just say, whatever your struggle, whatever your issue, you just be who God made you to be. Whatever you believe, whatever your lifestyle, whatever your system, you just be whoever you're comfortable being. And we are here to affirm that, the grace church. There's no life change. There's no transformation with that. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And by the way, grace has to precede truth. Grace says, come as you are. You can belong and we love you. But understand, within this embrace, we'll speak truth to each other. We'll talk about real struggles and we'll talk about real change. But above everything else, 
we'll point you to the Savior who's made all the difference in our lives and who is still having to change us day by day. It's not an easy issue, is it? Don't you wish it was just as simple as judge not, judge not, judge not. Never judge, never speak up. You just deal with you and let everybody else deal with their stuff. But it's not that simple. We don't get to judge the world, but we're commanded to use sound judgment with one another, not by mere appearances, based on truth, never hypocritically, always looking in the mirror harder than we look at everybody else, but with the grace of God, addressing our stuff and honestly speaking truth lovingly into other people's lives. It'd be easier to put on blinders, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? But we can't be the spotless bride that Jesus desires for himself if we do that. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? I want to just invite you for a moment to consider where this truth lands in your life. Is the, the fact of the matter that for you, there's some looking in the mirror that needs to happen? Have you found yourself in a position of being quick to judge others and slow to just deal with your own stuff? If that's the case, nobody's here to beat you up today. It's just an invitation to turn to Christ and seek his forgiveness and a gift of grace to begin to live differently. Why don't you just ask him to forgive you and to change you? For some of us, the truth of this passage today brings a word of conviction that we need to stop enabling and excusing behaviors and some people right around us that we love and we've been willing to just gloss over their stuff and the Holy Spirit has been saying speak truth not out of condemnation but speak up and speak the truth lovingly reach out and restore would you just open your heart up to, to that possibility and say Lord if there's somebody I need to begin to speak truth to would you show me I want to I be obedient to that Maybe you're in a place that for the very first time in your life, you need to just trust Christ to forgive your sins. Maybe you've been one of those seekers who's considering, trying to figure out what you believe and, and whether to turn to Christ. Why don't you today just, just make a simple choice to say, Jesus, I need you and your forgiveness. I choose to believe that you paid the price for my sin on the cross. And I'm asking you today to come into my life to forgive my sins and save me. I assure you, God always answers that prayer when we pray it in faith. Lord, I thank you for meeting us at our point of need. I thank you for the presence of your spirit here with us today. Thank you, the Holy Spirit, that you minister today. Grace and truth. We just sow that deeply in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.